Hello and welcome to The Personal Investor. I'm Ed Monk. Today on the show, it's been a tumultuous year so far in the energy markets and households are paying the price. What are the prospects that that can change anytime soon? And what pressure does the current situation put on both governments and energy companies to relieve the squeeze on bills? Our guest, Jonathan Waghorn, manager of the Guinness Global Energy Fund, is here to discuss it. If you enjoy the show, please rate us, share us or leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. Global energy markets are always important to our lives, but this year have taken on even greater significance. The high cost of energy is one of the main factors behind the current surge in inflation and the cost of living squeeze that households are facing. Energy security is in focus in a way that it has not been for decades. And then, of course, there is the challenge of climate change and moving to renewable forms of energy. In other words, there's lots to discuss right now when it comes to energy, which is why I'm very pleased to say that I'm joined today by Jonathan Waghorn, manager of the Guinness Global Energy Fund and the Sustainable Fund from Guinness as well, to do just that. Jonathan, welcome along. Um, we're going to come on to some of the long-term factors that are affecting energy markets and the investment case, of course, for energy companies. But let's start, shall we, with what's been happening in the short term. Tell us, if you can, Jonathan, what's been happening with energy markets this year and where we are right now. Yes, for, for sure. Um, it's been a massively busy year, lots going on. Um, I'll deal, first of all, with the world of hydrocarbons, so dealing with oil and natural gas, and then come on to the sustainable energy space, the renewables. Mm. We think about the world of oil, we've seen increasing uh, world oil demand this year, the order of nearly 2 million barrels a day. So that's the post-COVID demand recovery continuing to come through that's been muted by the the Russia-Ukraine crisis and somewhat by high prices. But consumption will be nearly 100 million barrels a day this year. It's still below where we were in 2019. So there's still a good deal of pent-up demand and expectations of more demand growth to come through next year. Key risk? Recession. But ultimately, demand looking very robust. We obviously need to see that being supplied. We think about OPEC and OPEC+. Plus. They have done a very good job micromanaging the market, talking a good story about raising quotas and raising capacity. But to be honest with you, they haven't really kept up in terms of real supply. So OPEC+, Plus currently producing about 3 million barrels a day below their quota level. OPEC Plus is a group, Saudi, leading that group very much in control of the market and looking for long-term prices lower than where they currently are. Something in the order of $75 a barrel would satisfy uh, them. Last time round, the US shale system came uh, came to the recovery in terms of new growth, but that is not yet coming through at enough of a degree or pace to satisfy things in the oil market. So still very tight. Natural gas has been even tighter. So prices in Europe and Asia, originally driven by demand strength, by coal shortages and by carbon prices late last year. Now the Russia crisis has kicked in and has taken prices up to dramatically, dramatically higher levels. And we have a price war going on. Europe outbidding Asia and Latin America to get marginal cargoes of liquefied natural gas into the European market. I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about that as well. Thinking about the sustainable energy side, thinking about renewables and efficiency, well, we'd say that the energy transition has only accelerated as a result of the Russian invasion of the Ukraine and the increasing importance of energy security. 
We see raw material inflation. We see that in battery metals. We see it in copper, in nickel. We see it in polysilicon. But still, the relative economics of sustainable energy have only got better this year, despite their absolute costs going up. So if we look at the markets of solar, of wind, of electric vehicles, of energy efficiency, activity is well ahead of the growth expectations that we had at the beginning of this year. So very tight markets, the sustainable energy markets growing faster than expected. But the key theme across both is one of a lack of investment. We need to see more investment in the energy markets in the years ahead. Yeah. And um, I mean, what you described there is a a pretty, uh, certainly in terms of those uh, oil, uh, you know, the, the, the squeeze on the one hand, supply being very constricted and this demand, as you say, post pandemic coming through really, really strongly. I mean, people are going to they won't need us to tell them that these prices are really high. You can see that in in bills uh, and at the petrol pumps and all the rest of it. So what comes next? What would it take for there to be significant falls in global energy prices? And by extension, of course, those bills that people are paying right now. Yeah, so the price setters are essentially the fossil fuels. Uh, Renewables don't set price. So we've got to look to oil, to coal and to natural gas and to think about what brings those prices down. And simply speaking, it's either more supply or it is less demand or it's a combination of the two. So we just kind of deal with those one by one. If you think about the oil markets, oil is 70% used in transportation. So it is petrol prices, gasoline prices in the US. In the near term, it is going to be demand destruction. Prices are getting to a level where we're starting to see consumers suffer pain and reduce their consumption. Earlier uh, this month, last month, we saw $5 per gallon gasoline in the United States. That's record high levels. And we've started to see now a change in demand habits there. Typically, that's what happens in these markets. Prices go high because supply is short. Demand is the only thing near term that can really react. Contrast that then with politicians talking about cutting taxes on petrol so that we can help out individual consumers. Well, that doesn't solve the problem. That just continues to keep demand at a higher level. So it's really not consistent with what we would need to see. In the near term, it's very difficult to see supply change. It's got to be a demand change. We do not have large quantities of spare oil elsewhere in the world. There's some growth potentially to come through in the U.S. shale. We could see volumes from Iran, but this is all very tight and even tighter because of Russia. So that really points to a demand reaction. Longer term, we need to see reinvestment. The price is high enough to incentivize that reinvestment, but companies typically with things like the energy transition, ESG issues, the threat of stranded assets, we're not seeing the investment cycle pick up yet. So in oil, in the near term, we're looking a bit, we're looking a little bit tight, to be honest with you. Gas, Very similar situation. And gas, really, we think of together with coal. So gas and coal prices move together, really there as a driver of um, electricity generation. You can switch between the two. And the loss of Russia is a massive issue. That is not something that this market can deal with very quickly or easily indeed. So I'm sorry to say that prices are not about to go back to their normal levels in, in the world of natural gas. The EU consumes 30 to 40% of its natural gas from Russia. 
And if we do not consume that natural gas, it doesn't go to anybody else. There's no one else that can take it. So that gas is lost to the market. So we need to fight Asia to get liquefied natural gas to come into our market. We can only do that by bidding prices up. And if the EU is to reduce its consumption of Russian natural gas, then we will continue to need to pay high prices to bid those LNG cargoes into, uh, into the EU. How does supply react? Ultimately, nothing short term, but long term, yes, there will be, but it's three to five years to build new liquefied natural gas capacity. It is being targeted. Money is being spent in the very, very early stages. Projects are being sanctioned, but still unlikely to see any response in the near term. So really, demand has to cut. And here we are today. We've seen the EU announce a 15% cut to natural gas demand. I don't know how that's going to be done. I really don't. Natural gas demand is used in industry. It is used in petrochemicals. It is used in fertilizers. Industry is going to have to suffer. It is going to be bad for GDP. I apologize for that. That's just the way it's going to be. What could help us? The weather. So we could have a cool summer, meaning less air conditioning demand. Cross your fingers for a warm winter, meaning less heating demand. But not having a cool summer. <laughs> not having a cool summer yet. Hardly something upon which you can build an economy. So to your question, you know, what will bring prices down? Oil will satisfy and settle, I think, more quickly. But the outlook for natural gas for us still at the minute is looking very, very tight for a period of time. Yeah, it's interesting what you say there, Jonathan. You know, I guess you and, 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 and people like you and me are used to talking about this in the financial context. This is now a geopolitical issue, um, a governmental issue. What are governments doing in this area to ensure that uh, the lights stay on, leaving aside what's happening with prices? And, you know, you've mentioned renewables as well. Are they the answer in the long term? Sure. So what we've seen from the EU as an example being kind of centrally uh, exposed to this whole issue is uh, a policy change called the Repower EU. Let me just put into some context the situation of the EU and also Germany specifically as well as as kind of key within this. So the EU imports nearly 60% of its energy needs and it relies on Russia for 40% of its natural gas, 27% of its crude oil and products and nearly 50% of its coal quite a lot of dependence. Germany uh, imports nearly two-thirds of its energy consumption. So again, that is not a very good situation to be in. Again, that's in terms of natural gas and energy as a whole. So what is Germany doing? Well, it's building LNG import terminals to allow it to overcome that situation. But again, they will take two or three years to build, and it still requires some gas to be produced that will take three to five years to, to, to bring that about. The EU response is the repower EU deal. So what are they trying to achieve? They're trying to increase the resilience of the EU energy system. So that means less reliance on Russia, higher LNG imports from elsewhere, gas pipeline imports from other non-Russian suppliers. But again, as I say, difficult to do that. Thinking about biomethane, renewable hydrogen production, again, these are very early days in terms of what can be achieved there. Increasing domestic renewable energy capacity, it takes time to build that. The only thing that can really react near term is the emphasis on efficiency. So it is consuming less. So that fits on a kind of a a broader energy efficiency and uh, emissions reduction set of targets that is all there already. 
quite a lot of investment, a lot of scale, a lot of hope. None of it is happening yet. Mm. So it's just policy at the current time. That, from my point of view, is very interesting. This all needs still to be followed through. So renewables are part of the solution. Efficiency is absolutely part of the solution, but neither of them can solve this. So it is energy as a whole, and the energy system, we think, is is not able to scale up renewables fast enough. So we need to have hydrocarbons to give that slightly more kind of immediate reaction. You get more bang for your buck, if you would, with hydrocarbons than you do with renewables in the near term, whilst actually, economically speaking, it makes sense to develop the renewables. You just need more capital up front to make that happen. And just one question on, re- on renewables, because I think people will be interested in this in this transition and this idea that it's been accelerated by what's been happening and uh, the, the the need to wean ourselves off other forms of, of energy. What does that acceleration look like? Does it mean, I mean, you mentioned investment there. Does it mean uh, the cost of renewables becomes cheaper? We're producing more of the infrastructure and that drives down cost. How does, what does it look like exactly? So the transition has been going on for a number of years. We're still very, very early days in terms of the transition. I think what has happened in the last few years that gets us more excited about the pace and the scale and the likelihood that this is achieved is that the economics are dramatically improved. So if you look Mm. at the economics of renewable power, solar, polysilicon, solar, PV, look at onshore wind, increasingly offshore wind, they are increasingly becoming the most economic new forms of power into most markets around the world. So if you are looking to produce new electricity, it is economically sensible to do that via solar PV or via onshore wind. So we're very confident that that now is the key driver. It takes capital. That's the key issue. And do we have the supply chain to be able to deliver the equipment, the raw materials to allow all of this to happen? So building new supply is one very, very key component. The other component that is very often overlooked is the one of efficiency. If we don't consume it in the first place, we don't need to replace it. Okay, And if we can be more efficient in our building stock, if we can be more efficient in the way that we transport ourselves, that again will only accelerate the transition even further. But a renewable system, even with greater levels of, uh, of efficiency, still needs some fossil fuels we still need that for a number of years to come we can't get off fossil fuels because your fossil fuels are permanently available fully dispatchable solar is available during the day wind when the wind blows you can't build an economy on that alone so having a mix across the whole system for us is absolutely critical so economics drives it And then policy is the factor that accelerates it. And if you look at all the policy from COP26 to the EU Green Deal to Biden's green energy plans that he's having problems getting through uh, in, in terms of the political situation, that accelerates the transition. Now, if we're going to go to a one and a half degree warming situation, a net zero 2050, then we need to see investment in energy, in clean energy, going from $1.4 trillion per annum to $4.5 trillion per annum. That is a lot of money to be spent, and that's not allowing for cost inflation to make that transition to occur. So it is a 10, 20, 30 year story that we see in terms of that transition a long way to go. A long way to go. Um, these are huge issues. The climate change issue is huge. This geopolitical issue is huge. Um, but we are also here to talk about 
investment and uh, the investment case for energy and and our audience are investors of course uh, it's your job to assess the case for investing in energy companies what are the prospects for those companies right now given all you've said about the current situation and what are the challenges for the future as a very kind of headline level they're about as good as they've been for some time yeah, yeah i would say i appreciate that we have the threat of a recession um, but if we think about the longer-term structural situation for, for, for these companies, looking pretty good. I'm a manager of two funds. I have a fossil fuel fund, the Global Energy Fund, and then I have a sustainable energy fund, so the Guinness Sustainable Energy Fund, the renewables and efficiency names. They have different investment cases. Yeah. So if I deal with the fossil fuels, first of all, think of that as your, your cyclical investment, typically sort of 10 to 15 year cycles. And these companies, whilst they're being beaten up today because they've become too profitable, back in 2016, they made no money, zero return on capital employed. 2020, 0% return on capital employed. So with prices where they are today, we're back to mid-cycle profitability uh, and, and, and actually looking on a longer term basis, a $75 oil price generates mid-cycle return on capital and, and we believe good, comfortable upside in those equities. The free cash flow they are generating is 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 historically at very, very high levels indeed. So for the for the companies that we have in the Global Energy Fund, the free cash flow yield just over 10% this year at a $95 oil price. 10% next year at an $80 oil price. Again, we haven't seen those levels of free cash flow yield for a long time, covering a dividend yield of 4%, very nice. Um, the price to book ratio currently at 1.8 times. Again, low versus history and low versus market. So we think often, and I, I try to, to, to discuss a kind of a barometer of risk of valuation in those names, we think about the oil price that is implied in the equities. So I run mm, valuation models. Yeah. And if I run my valuation models in reverse, if I put today's share price in, what oil price explains that share price? And across the portfolio on average, it's about $59 a barrel. So if we have a long-term oil price, $59 a barrel, all things being equal, we think the shares in the Global Energy Fund are about fair value. If we have $70 as a long-term oil price, there's 35 or 40% upside. $80 oil is more like 70 or 80% upside. There's a really interesting value case here. It's cyclical. It is volatile. We're going into a recession. So there's always all these risks that, 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 are, that are here. But ultimately, we believe we are entering an investment cycle in the energy space as a whole, fossil fuels especially. And ultimately, that doesn't play out over 12 or 18 months. It's typically 10 years, 10 years more. So I would urge people to have a look at that, but think about and be wary of, of, of the volatility there. The, um, the other aspect then is the sustainable energy name. So the renewable energy companies, a very different investment case. And that's a, an investment case playing out over 10, 20, 30 years as we make this transition to a sustainable energy system. So what are the drivers of that? Well, it's population and GDP growth, it's climate change, it's pollution, but the economics is the thing that, that really drives that. So if we look at the valuation of those companies, there we're looking at a fund that's trading just at about 17 times PE for next year. It's a premium to world markets. It's a premium to the MSCI world. But that's because this is going to grow faster than the MSCI world. And we think our companies have a normalized growth rate, normalized excluding recessions, excluding COVID, something like 13 to 14% per annum earnings growth. I'd argue that's well in excess 
of markets, which is why that fund trades at a premium. But I would like to think on the long term, that is a fund that does very, very nicely indeed, as these companies are very much in the sweet spot of benefiting from the energy transition. Well, indeed, indeed. I mean, um, it, it's interesting what you say there uh, in relation to the, to the uh, oil companies in particular. We've got results coming up from um, the oil majors in the UK. And I dare say that uh, there'll be big numbers when they come through for all the reasons that you say. Uh, and that perhaps they might even deploy a similar sort of argument that, hey, you know, we've had some years when we haven't made any money. Politicians might not see it that way. And there's a lot of pressure on them to act. And it's going to be pretty toxic if people are really, really struggling with bills and to fill their car and to see these headlines of huge um, uh, profits being made at all companies. How much does sort of political intervention and political risk enter your thinking when you're assessing these companies? Because it, it can be an unknown factor, right? It's an unknown factor, but it's one that always rears its head. Um, we've seen it in previous cycles. So, so this sector it is not one without political risk. And, and the companies you mentioned, they are easy targets um, at, you know, at the current time. More so on the fossil fuel side of things, um, in terms of your, your, your BPs and your shells and, and, and producing and selling petrol at the pump, etc. I would argue the challenge for politicians then is to tempt companies to take those excess profits, those cyclical profits, and to recycle those cash flows into domestic supply into energy efficiency into new capacity for the years ahead that's what we need so just taxing it and stopping investment ultimately i don't think solves the problem but what i would say as well this is not new to us we have seen this in previous cycles yeah go from the 1998 to 2012 2013 cycle we saw tax rates go up dramatically in the uk in venezuela across the world and still the fossil fuel space was a space that did exceptionally well so it doesn't take away all of the upside, but it certainly does cap some of the returns. So, yes, it will be there. We expect to see more of it, but it doesn't take away the excitement or the potential that exists in this space. And, and, and just finally, then, it won't stop those companies rewarding their shareholders, however that is, buybacks, dividends. Um, they, they will continue to come through, even if it is difficult politically. They will continue to do exactly that. The, you know, the truth is the BPs and the shells of this world we think as being UK companies and UK profits, it is actually only a small proportion of their profits that come from the UK. So if they are taxed, it doesn't actually make a great deal of difference to the bottom line. It's looking at global taxation that really would be, would be the key thing. So I believe from a shareholder point of view, there's still you know, a lot of opportunity that sits there. Okay, well, Jonathan, that's been an education in uh, in the current situation in energy. So thank you so much for coming along to talk to us about it. We've covered absolutely loads. Uh, but that is all that we have time for. Thanks an awful lot for joining me. That's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Please note that the value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. Investors should note that the views expressed may no longer be current and may have already been acted upon. This information is not a personal recommendation for any particular investment. If you are unsure about the suitability of an investment, you should speak to one of Fidelity's advisors or an authorised financial advisor of your choice. Overseas investments will be affected by movements in currency exchange rates and investments in emerging markets can be more volatile 
volatile than other more developed markets. Reference to the specific securities should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell these securities and is included for the purposes of illustration only. Tax treatment depends on individual circumstances and all tax rules may change in the future. Withdrawals from a pension product may not be possible until you reach age 55, 57 from 2028. This podcast may not be reproduced or circulated without prior permission. No statements or representations made in this podcast are legally binding on Fidelity or the recipient. This podcast is meant only for UK residents and does not constitute an offer or a solicitation in any jurisdiction in which it may be unlawful to make such an offer or solicitation.